0: Son Zachary was born with a a congenital heart defect. So already from 20 weeks in the womb, we knew that he only had one ventricle that uh, that was really functioning. Uh, And so that necessitated two open heart surgeries in his early years. So one when he was an infant, the other when he was about three, four years old, four years old, just before kindergarten. So two years ago was his second open heart surgery. And uh, that was, as you can imagine, big emotions, big prayers. And we're so thankful that we've got this healthy and active son today. Um, I mean, if you've never had a kid go through serious medical issues, you could still imagine it's it's a wild ride. Uh, but those surgeries—they didn't actually—they didn't actually repair his heart. They didn't actually fix anything necessarily what they did actually was kind of reorient the whole circulatory system in his body so that that his body could just kind of function with one half of his heart working kind of crazy stuff that they're able to do but it was it was adaptive however there are other heart conditions that require something a lot a lot more significant a lot more serious there's a lot more drastic. There's a, there's a broad condition called cardiomyopathy. And it, it means that it's, it's difficult for the heart muscle to pump blood to the rest of the body. And there are a number of reasons for this. Some forms of cardiomyopathy involve a, a kind of a, a hardening of the heart, literally. There's, there's a scarring, there's this rigidness, there's a stiffening of the heart that makes it really hard for the, the heart to, to pump blood to the body. And this can become so so dangerous Uh, So deadly, actually, that the only hope for sustained life is is a heart transplant. Just imagine that. You're, You're in a place where you actually need to have your heart taken out of your body and a whole new heart placed inside in order for you to be able to live because of a hardening of heart. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because according to the Scriptures, according to the Bible, that's actually the condition of the human heart. That without any intervention... We don't just need a few little tweaks. We don't need an adaptive surgery. We don't just need a few lifestyle decision changes. We actually need a new heart. We need a heart transplant. That's how hardened our hearts are apart from God's work in our lives. So let's pray and then read a passage that gets into this from Ezekiel 11. Lord God, thank you so much for my friends who are gathered here today, and, and I pray that as we spend this time in your word, God, would you speak? Would you speak to us? Would you move in us by your Holy Spirit? Lord, would you open up our eyes, whatever objections we might have, whatever pride we might hold on to, Lord, that would keep us from having your word pierce us and to soften us, Lord? I pray you just remove that. I, I pray, Lord, that, that we would be able to let go of that and that we would be able to sit under your word, and hear your voice, and that you would, you would transform us today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you've got a Bible with you, Ezekiel 11, verse 14 is where we're gonna begin this morning. Ezekiel 11, verse 14, where we read, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, the people of Jerusalem... Have said of your fellow exiles and all the other Israelites, they're far away from the Lord. This land was given to us as our possession. Therefore, say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will know; they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, declares the Sovereign Lord. You might be hearing that. You might be going, I have no idea what's going on here. I need some context here. So this, this is written by an Old Testament prophet named, unsurprisingly named Ezekiel, and Ezekiel was from a priestly family in Jerusalem but before he was old enough to become a priest he had been hauled away as an exile in Babylon so the king of Babylon kind of the super the, the the national superpower at the time had swept in invaded Judah installed a king of their own liking of the king the king of Babylon's own liking and then taken 10,000 exiles including the the former king and Ezekiel and many many others took them as exiles to Babylon. So these were dark days in Babylon. The temple still stood. They still had a king on the throne, but thousands of people had been forcibly dislocated from their home. A lot lot of hopelessness here. A little flicker of hope that maybe Babylon will be overthrown. Maybe things will change. Maybe this is just a blip, but it's, it's, it's tough going. Now, now Ezekiel, when he is 30 years old, that's the normal age when you would have received um, the calling to be a priest. Instead, he, he gets a different calling. He gets called to be a prophet, which from a human perspective is way worse. It's way worse to be a prophet because God tells Ezekiel right from the start, I'm gonna tell you things you need to say and nobody's gonna like it. Nobody's gonna listen to you. How, how about that for like first day on the job? Your boss just says to you, hey, I've got a job for you just so that you know you're not gonna do, it's not gonna go well going to go very badly. Nobody's going to like what you do, but have fun. Here you go. Like that's kind of what God says to Ezekiel. Now from a, a, from God's perspective, he's successful if he, if he obeys, if he, if he faithfully communicates what God has given him. But for the most part, Ezekiel's message is, look, this, this, uh, this time in Babylon is not just a blip. It's not ending anytime soon. You're going to be here for a while. And in fact, things are going to get worse before they get better. Because the king of Babylon is going to come back and he's going to, he's going to tear down the temple and it's, it's, just, it's going to get worse, actually. Not a, not a popular, crowd-pleasing message at all. And, and yet, in this passage we looked at, Ezekiel does actually have a word of comfort. God gives him a word of comfort because we find out that there are people in Jerusalem, the people who are left over there, who are, uh, who are kind of doing this like, nah, 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 nah. you know, you're, like, you're over there, we're over here, where are the, where are the loved ones? We're the chosen ones. You're cut off from God's presence because you're over there in Babylon. And God, through Ezekiel, says, no, you guys, you guys have it all wrong. You see, I'm, I'm actually still with these exiles. I'm present here as well. You don't actually have to be in Jerusalem. You don't have to be at the temple. I'm present here as well. Which, you know, like, the church in the modern West is in a bit of a position of exile, right? Like there's this sense that we once had a kind of a presence and an influence, and we don't have that anymore. So the church is in this exile, and, and sometimes we might wonder, where is God in this? Well, he, he's right here. He's still with us. He's with us in exile. And, uh, and, and what, what God says to Ezekiel here points forward to things that Jesus says in the New Testament, like when he's uh, with the, the woman at the well in Samaria, and he tells her that the key to worship is not physical location, right? It's, it's the presence of the Holy Spirit and the presence of truth. That's the, key, that's the key to worship. It's kind of what God is saying through Ezekiel right here in the Old Testament. It's not about the temple. It's about where I am, and I'm with the exiles here as well. So that's really good news. And then, and then God takes this encouragement and he ups it a level. He says, not only... Not only am I with them, and and not only am I going to bring them back eventually to the land. See, the thing is that that wasn't actually the issue. The issue wasn't that they were dislocated from the land. The issue was why they had been dislocated from the land. The issue was their hearts. And so God says, I'm going to bring you back, but I'm going to do something even more radical. I am going to take out that stony, hardened heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you new affections, new desires, new motives, right? I'm, I'm going to put a new heart in you. And the implication of that is that their hearts right now are currently divided. And they're, and they're stony. And they're hardened. That's, that's, their, that's their situation right now. And the reason for that is pretty clear in Ezekiel. It's idolatry. That's why the first thing that the exiles are going to do when they come back to the land, according to God, is that they're going to get rid of all their vile images and detestable idols. See, idolatry is this massive issue in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. And it's, uh, it's a massive issue in Ezekiel as well. God is saying again and again, this is your problem. You need to deal with it. A few chapters earlier, it's kind of uh, what kicks off this, this um, section in Ezekiel. E- Ezekiel is kind of transported by the Holy Spirit to Jerusalem. It's kind of like, you know, in the Scrooge movie, in the Christmas carol, and the ghost of Christmas present takes Scrooge and sees what's going on, but nobody can see or hear Scrooge. You know what I'm talking about? Christmas reference in January. You got it, right? So that's kind of what happens with Ezekiel. He's uh, he's brought by the Spirit to Jerusalem, but he's not... But, but nobody can see him or hear him, right? He's just seeing what's going on. And, and God shows him, Son of Man, look, look at what's taking place in the temple. And he sees that there are physical idols that have been erected in the temple. He sees that people are, um, they're offering incense to created things, to drawings of creatures. And he sees, he goes into the inner court and he sees, he sees a group of men, leaders, Jewish leaders, and they're bowing down to the sun. In the sky, you know, they're bowing down to the sun. This is, this is crazy. This is happening in the temple, in the inner court, by the leaders of Jerusalem, just following all the practices of the nations around them, worshiping all these gods, all these, all these false, false gods. And, and maybe you hear that and you go, well, that's crazy, but that's irrelevant to me because I haven't carved any wooden statues recently that I've been bowing down to. haven't bowed, bowed down to the sun except for maybe that sunrise yoga class I did a few years ago. But other than that, I I don't bow down to to these things, so this this is irrelevant to me. A few chapters later, God tells Ezekiel, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Just in case you thought that Old Testament idolatry was just this kind of, bowing down to crude statues, here's evidence that idolatry in the Old Testament was just as sophisticated and subtle as it is today. They have, they have set up idols in their hearts, as in there are so-called gods, would-be gods, created things that they are giving allegiance to instead of to God, that they love more than the living and creator God, they've set them up in their hearts. See, that, that's what an idol is. An idol isn't just a statue. An, an idol is anything that we place on the throne of our lives instead of God. And it can be, it can be anything. I mean, we, we can put things on the throne of our lives that, that kind of we give love and allegiance to that we make our decisions based on. We can do that with things that are like vices, like, like sexual immorality or drugs. We can do it with things that are seemingly good. We can do it with family. We can do it with safety. We can do it with security. Good things that become ultimate things that get put on the throne of our lives. We can do this with our own self. We can put ourselves, a created being, on the throne of our lives. And that, I think, in our culture is so, it's so taken for granted It's such a given that people wouldn't even think of that as being a problem. Of course I'm on the throne of my life. Of course I will make my decisions based on what's best for me. Of course I am number one in my life and I'm going to look out for number one, right? That's like how people live. It's idolatry. It's idolatry because you are placing a created being, yourself, on the throne of your life instead of God. So you can see how vulnerable all of us are to this how easily you and I can slip back into idolatry, into setting up idols in our hearts. Now, you remember when we talked about cardiomyopathy? Actually, I didn't, I didn't mention this. So, so sometimes cardiomyopathy, that, that condition of literal hardening of the heart, sometimes it's hereditary. Other times, it is, it is caused by lifestyle decisions, drugs, alcohol, that kind of thing, unhealthy life decisions. And so it is with this, this the spiritual hardening of the heart that is caused by, it's, it's caused by idolatry, is caused by decisions that we make, the decision to try to split our allegiance between God and between a whole bunch of other created things, the decision to put a created thing on the, on the throne of our lives, that causes this hardening of the heart, this stoniness in the heart. And this can be so deadly. It can be so lethal. In, uh, in 600 BC, uh, roundabouts, when Ezekiel wrote these words, spoke these words, and at the end of his, his vision, he sees, so he sees all this stuff happening in the temple, right? And at the end of the vision, he sees the glory of God departing from the temple, just leaving, leaving Jerusalem. And then the decree of of judgment. So there's there's this departing of God's presence and glory and then the arrival of of judgment and and ultimately of death. That's that's the consequence of this. And it's the consequence in our lives too. When our hearts have become hardened because of idolatry, the consequence is, is that we cannot, we can't experience the presence of God like we were created to. We can't hear the voice of God. Like like we were meant to, we, we simply can't live as God created us to live. There's this departure of His presence and and, and ultimately spiritual spiritual death. See, and it just it just strikes me as as I go through this, as I thought about this, especially that phrase the the divided heart. I, I think, you know, I think I think a lot of a lot of Christians really struggle with this, and you know, a lot of Christians who are trying to do this kind of like halfway thing, right where they, they claim faith in jesus but but then the kind of their hearts you know are kind of split between Jesus and a whole bunch of other things in the world that kind of claim their loyalty that claim their their attention and and the result is this I think this anguish and anxiety and and just in, in general like a sense of uneasiness. I think we struggle a lot and it's, be, it's because our hearts are divided, right so much of our issues so many of our issues are caused simply by having. A divided heart. Because that stoniness, that callousness is setting in and our hearts aren't responsive in the way that they were created to be. Does that make sense? So the question is, what do we do about that? And, and actually, the, the real question is, what does God do about that? And this is, what he, this is what he does. This is what he says he's going to do in Ezekiel 11. He says, I'm going to perform a heart transplant on you. I'm going to give you a new heart. Take out that old heart. I'm gonna give you a brand new heart. Now, how does God do that? How, do, how does that ever happen? It happens through a death, doesn't it? I mean, the only way that you, if you are, if you, if you've got a heart that's failing and you're gonna have a heart transplant, the only way you're gonna get a heart is if somebody else, an organ donor, has actually passed away and and, and has kind of made that heart available to you, it happens through a death. And that's what Jesus has done for us. And I know we, 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 we use this language all the time in the church, and the danger is that we can kind of become almost callous. We become so used to it. Maybe putting it in this analogy of a heart transplant helps us. Jesus gave his life for us so that we could have a new heart. That's how Paul puts it in Galatians 2. He says, The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He gave himself for me. He gave up his life so that I could have a new heart. Me, who who had hardened my own heart through idolatrous choices. The Son of God gave his life so that me, an unworthy sinner could be washed clean, could be reconciled to God. He gave up everything so that I could live. Yeah. See, this is the thing. Like a, like a literal physical heart transplant is, is incredible. It's, it's, a, it's a modern miracle of science. But all that it does is it, is, is it temporarily delays death. But this, this heart transplant that God does through Jesus It may be metaphorical. It may be spiritual. It's no less real or meaningful. This heart transplant results in eternal life in this reconciliation with God. This is what Jesus has done for us. And even more than that, God says, I'm going to give you a new heart. And he says, I'm going to give you a new spirit as well. And we could capitalize that. Capital S, spirit. God says, "I, I am going to put my spirit in you and this is again thinking about those uh, those people in jerusalem who are saying oh you guys out there in babylon you've been cut off from god's presence here god is saying look i'm gonna put my spirit in you it's not about uh, my, my my presence is no longer about physical buildings it's about physical bodies his people are going to be his temple. And this is what happened when Jesus rose from the dead. He, he ascends to the right hand of the Father in heaven and he pours out his Holy Spirit on his people so that, they could, so that they could represent him, so that they could make his presence known in the world, so that they could bear the fruit of the Spirit, reflecting the character of Jesus through their lives, a new heart and a new spirit, his spirit, the presence of the holy, almighty God dwelling within us. And and Ezekiel says that that because of this, or one of the outworkings of this is that they will have undivided hearts. Where previously their hearts were divided, now, now they're gonna be so undivided, so focused. And can I tell you, this is what peace looks like. Some of you know what it's like to try to please 10 different competing voices in your life. Some of you know what it's like to have this battle raging in your heart as various idols pull in their different directions, right? To just have a divided heart. It's it's just this this constant chaos and unrest. To have an undivided heart, to have this kind of resolved commitment to follow him, to follow God, to obey him as Lord above all else. That's what peace looks like. This is going to be what God does through giving us this new heart. It's going to be undivided. And, and, and finally, he says that the, the result of all of this, this new heart, new spirit, undivided heart, is that we will know him. He says here at the end, they will be my people, and I will be their God. And I want to sit there just for a little bit because, because that's, um, that's ancient covenantal language. That was the kind of language uh, that would be used in marriages in the ancient world. Uh, I'll be yours, you'll be mine. This this kind of promise of a relationship, of commitment, of intimacy, and so on. And this is what we see. This is what we see in the scriptures uh, throughout. In Revelation 21, very end of the Bible, John, the disciple, sees this vision. He sees a new heavens and a new earth. um, And he sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, I believe represents the people of God. And he sees the new Jerusalem coming down, out of heaven, and he says he sees the, the the holy city prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This is. Again, this is, the, this is the marriage analogy that comes out in Revelation that, that heaven is like this, this wedding banquet, this feast, coming out of heaven, like, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. This is the promise that in eternity, God's people will truly know him. They will know him who created all things by the power of his word. They will know, they will truly know the one who was and who is and is to come, who holds time in his hands, who's the beginning and the end. They will know the one who holds the keys to death and to life and is the judge of the living and the dead. They will know him. They will know God. We will know him. I mean, that's incredible. We will know who God is. Truly and intimately, we'll see his face. And all of this comes about through this, this heart transplant that Jesus brings about. You know, if, you, if you've been with us at the bridge for any period of time, you know that this is, uh, this is our vision as a church. That we live to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe that this is at the very heart Of of, of the need for for humanity. That the the great need of humanity is to know who God is. To know who Jesus is. The great need of humanity is, is not for a few little tweaks. Little lifestyle adjustments. No, the great need of humanity is for a new relationship. To take center stage in someone's life. And we believe that everything else flows from that. Once that new relationship is established, everything flows from that. And we believe that's only possible when that old, idolatry-ridden, hardened heart is replaced by a new heart. That's what God gives us this new heart for. He gives us a new heart. Takes out that old one. Gives us a new one so that we can know him. So that we want to know him. So that we're able to be in relationship with him. And so before I go any further, I, I, and I, I'm, I'm going to go a bit further, but I, I do want to make an appeal here to any of you who, who have not undergone that heart transplant, that spiritual heart transplant, and I just, I want to appeal to you and, and say that, that God is, is speaking to you and saying, look, I, I want to do this in you. Your idolatry is killing you. It is hardening your heart makes it impossible for you to live as you were meant to live, let me give you a new heart, a fully functioning, healthy heart. It comes through faith in Jesus. And so I just encourage you today to put your trust in Jesus. Receive that gift. Receive that newness of life that he wants to give you. Now we could push this heart transplant analogy one step further. I read a story about a girl named Abby. And Abby, when she was when she was a baby, she also, like my son Zachary, needed a heart uh, surgery, open heart surgery. But by the time she was 11 years old, she went to the doctors and they discovered that her heart function was, was not, it wasn't good. It was very, very low, and that in fact they would need to do a heart transplant. And so this article was, uh, was a year after the fact, so a year after this transplant. And Abby was talking in this article about how she experienced like, a little bit of survivor's guilt because she realized that, that somebody else had to die for her to be able to live. She said she was, she was trying to get to know who this was, who this guy was, who, what he liked, and what he was all about. And her mother uh, said that they, the donor, gave me the gift of my daughter's life. The words, thank you, feel so inadequate, but there's no way to really express how you feel for someone who made that kind of sacrifice. How do you say thank you? How do you respond to a gift that costs someone everything? And I would suggest that one way to say thank you is to live um, a healthy life afterwards. To live a life that that strengthens that new heart. That shows honor for the one who gave it to you. I mean, can you imagine if somebody needed a heart transplant because of the kinds of decisions they had made in their life? And then they got the heart transplant, and then they went back and they just kept on living the way they always had before? I mean, how, how disrespectful would that be? How, how callous would that be to treat this gift that costs someone everything like that? And yet that's what we do when we put our trust in Jesus, when we say we believe in him and yet we hold on to our idols and we still try to divide our allegiance and, and we neglect our relationship with, with God, we, we simply don't really nurture that relationship. That's what we're doing. We're, and when I put it that way, I just, Lord, may it not be. May it not be in me. May it not be in you. Lord, help me to honor the gift that you gave me. I don't want do, to do that. I, I want to honor that gift. I want to I strengthen that heart. I want to live a healthy life. If I were to receive a, a physical heart transplant, I would want to be committed to good nutrition. I wouldn't be eating pizza pops anymore. That would be out. I'd want to live a healthy life. I'd, I'd want to exercise, right? I'd want to honor that gift in that way. And so for the rest of this morning, just for the next few minutes, I want to talk about a few practices that, that, um, you know, we talked about the new heart is given so that we can have relationship with God, so we can know him. These are practices that help us grow in that. They're practices that, that strengthen this new heart, that uphold it, that nurture it. Uh, and, and coincidentally, they're also the first of our three core values as a church. Let's talk about the word. Let's talk about the word of God. I, was, uh, I don't really listen to podcasts at all, but I was listening to one a couple days ago, and the guy said, if you're not being formed by the word, you're being formed by the world. And, and what happens is that when we, when we allow our vision of who God is to, uh, to be shaped by our own feelings, what we think God should be like, God shouldn't be judgmental ever, you know, like that kind of thing. When we allow our culture, pop culture, friends, family, or whatever, to shape our vision of who God is, instead of the scriptures, we're just really just going back to idolatry. We are creating God in our own preferred image. But when, we, when, we're, when we're immersed in the scriptures, when we allow the Bible and, and our deep kind of study and reading of it to shape our vision of who God is, who we are meant to be, then we're walking in the truth. We're walking in the light. And so I encourage you, I strongly, strongly encourage you to make it a daily practice in your life, to be reading the Bible and to be digging deep into the scriptures I'm grateful that from the time I was a child, my parents kind of instilled this in me. I had no idea what I was reading half the time. You know, dad, what does circumcision mean? You know, like, dad, what can you explain song of songs to me? What does this verse mean? <laughs> right, I had no idea what I was reading, but, but it, was, it was instilled in me from an early age. I've, I've, got, to, I've got to be in the Bible. I, I want to be reading and learning and growing in my knowledge of who God is. I just encourage you to do this. I encourage you to do it corporately as well. Because I've seen this, I've seen how, how God works in a special way when his people gather together under his word. I mean, I see it sometimes in preaching, but I, I see it even uh, in, in Bible studies, right? I've been part of Bible study groups where God's spirit was just opening up hearts, softening in hearts that he, that, that he hadn't individually, but in a group he was, he was doing this work. Join together with others. Become part of a a discipleship group or a community group here at the bridge because all of those are basing their discussions on the Bible. This is a big value for us as a church. Again, our, our community groups, our discipleship groups, they're based on the scriptures. When I preach... I mean, I, I had originally planned I was going to preach today on our core values. First of our core values as a church. In the end, that's kind of tangential. I'm preaching Ezekiel 11, right? Every Sunday I come and I'm going to preach the Bible. I want to preach the word because it's, it's a living word. It pierces through. How many times have I been reading my Bible and God just shows me something new? You know, pierces my heart, teaches me transforms me, shapes me. I want that for you. Be committed to this. We are, as a church, I want to encourage you to do this, uh, to, to, be, to be committed to this as well. It, it strengthens our heart, upholds our heart. Let's, let's talk about worship. And worship really is just anything we do to show our reverence to God. And so we can do that in our day-to-day acts of obedience. But a lot of times we think about music. And appropriately so, because, because in the Old Testament, Israel's corporate times together were shaped by worship. The Psalms this is the longest book in the Bible, 150 uh, chapters. 150 uh, chapters. That's that's the songbook of ancient Israel. We come to the New Testament. We see Jesus singing hymns with his disciples. We. We see the early church we see Paul admonishing people look s- share songs and and hymns and and or psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with gratitude to God in your hearts this is this is what the early church did and so you know this is one of the other major ways I've experienced God's presence and, and his love is through is through corporate worship it's happened so many times but uh, most recently at the uh, 24-7 prayer national kind of gathering back in November. It's actually an organization, 24-7 prayer. And and there's something for me special about being in a place where I'm not the pastor, right? Like I'm not worried about like, who's here? Who in here? Did Johnny come? Not Johnny. I don't mean you specifically, Johnny. Just like a generic name. (laughs) But just, you know, just (laughs) really watching out for you, Johnny, if you're here or not. But just, you know, I was worried, like, who's here? Who isn't here? How's the sound? How's the song selection? What are people thinking? What are newcomers thinking? You know, like, always worried about that as a pastor. I try really, really hard not to, but it kind of seeps in. But in a place like that, I'm not the pastor. I got no say at all in anything that's happening. And just able to enter in fully. And I just, I love those times so much. To be able to take my eyes off myself and lift them to God and in those moments, I don't want it to end. Like, it's so, so good just to be in God's presence and have my eyes set on him. I, like, I hear people sometimes say, well, if heaven is like this never-ending worship service, it's going to be really boring. Are you kidding me? Have you never experienced real worship before? I mean, I think heaven's going to be more than that, but if it, all, it was only that, that would be pretty amazing. Just to be able to sit and worship God, the power, the power and the freedom in that. And so that's a huge value for us as a church. That's why we've invested a full-time staff position in Jaylene right here. Yeah. (laughs) It's why Jaylene, you know, we said, okay, we're going to do this 24-7 prayer week like we've done a few times every year. And Jaylene's like, what I want to do is i worship and prayer night every night that week. All right. Awesome. I love it. I love that all week, every night at 6.30, we're going to be gathering together. For, uh, for worship. We're gonna be devoted to this as a church in a way that I don't think we have been before. I can't, I can't wait for that. I know our family, we're planning on being here every single night. Maybe some of you will, will come a number of nights as well. Maybe you'll just decide this week. We're gonna see what happens. We're gonna devote this week to worshiping God together with our brothers and sisters and, and see how God will move through that. So, so this is a value for us as a church. We, we're devoted to worship. And let's talk about prayer. I'm going to share a quote with you from one of my favorite writers. Some of you have heard the quote before, but I'm just going to, I love it. And um, this is Leonard Ravenhill, fiery evangelist from the last century. He said, Poverty stricken, as the church is today in many things, she is most stricken here in the place of prayer. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers Few prayers, many singers, few clingers, lots of pastors, few wrestlers, many fears, few tears, much fashion, little passion. That's my favorite one, I think. Many interferers, few intercessors, many writers, but few fighters. Failing here, we fail everywhere. See, Leonard Ravenhill wrote this in the 50s. He looked at the church and he said, look, the church has all of these resources and all of this knowledge, and yet it's still a declining church. How much more true is that 60, 70 years later that the church in the modern West has so many resources, so much practical knowledge about how best to do things, and yet it is an ailing and decaying church, largely speaking, Whereas all around the globe, the churches that don't have any of that stuff are growing and exploding and thriving. Why? Because they're devoted to prayer. Because they understand this. It's not about your resources or your knowledge. It's, it's about your devotion to the Lord. It's about that undivided heart. Now how, do you grow, how do you grow in relationship with anybody? You grow in relationship with them by talking to them, having conversations with them, spending time with them. Modern Western church, sometimes it's just like we're going around telling people about somebody that we don't even really know. We've got to be devoted to prayer. And I could say with integrity, this is a value for us as a church. I want to see it grow, but it is a value for us. That's why we spend time every Monday at noon just praying, no agenda, just coming together, God's presence, seeking him together. It's why we make prayer available every Sunday after the service. Why we pray together before every every service. It's why our community groups and discipleship groups as well as being based on scripture always take time to pray for one another, to pray for the church. It's why we do these weeks of 24-7 prayer. And so I'm going to, Deviate a little bit here from like the you know inspiring woo kind of talk, and just kind of uh, do a little bit of like technicalities about this coming week. So 24/7 prayer. Really, really excited about this. You heard some of you on the announcements if you showed up on time. You heard on the announcements, uh, like some of the details about what we're doing. So the idea is that we've got this unbroken chain of prayer in our church from person to person, 24 hours a day for the next seven days, and and so people people can pray. Uh, wherever, wherever they'd like. But we're really encouraging people this time to pray here at the church building and to pray in the prayer room if you'd like. We've got a whole bunch of things available to you there. It's right up there is where the prayer room is. And, uh, and what we need, so there's, there's a sign-up sheet I think we might send out the link again this afternoon, but it's also on the posters upstairs. QR code, sorry, online people. Um, but you can also email the church office if you want. If you want that link, sign up. Get, take a slot, half an hour, hour, more. Do it the same kind of time every every day this week, and just pray for it. Pray for our church. Pray for our community. Pray for God's Spirit to move. Pray for that new heart, right? And and if you sign up. Here's the thing. I really like you to indicate whether you are going to pray at the church building or not. Because if you are, we're going to make sure we've got staff here to host it and kind of open up the building for you. If you're not going to pray at the church building and you signed up for a 2 a.m. slot, I don't really want to be here at 2 a.m., but I will be if you want to pray here at 2 a.m., right? So just indicate on there if you, if you do want to pray at the church building. But th- this is what we're doing. We're devoted to this. We are devoted to prayer. We, we, see, we see the tide in our culture. Right, we see, we see the decaying and the decline of the church and we know the only way to reverse that is if we are devoted to the Lord. If we are engaging in these practices that grow us in him, that, uh, that, that strengthen that new heart that he's given us if we have an undivided heart. That's, that's how this changes. It's not more money. It's not, more, it's not no more conferences and retreats. It's, 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 that, it's that undivided heart. That's what that's will do it. I, I made an appeal before to those who um, haven't received that, that heart transplant through faith in Jesus. I, I want to make, to close here, I want to make an appeal to those who have. I know it's a lot of you who have, but, but nevertheless know that it's easy for us to experience a, a rehardening, right? That even if you've put your trust in Jesus, it's easy for some of that idolatry to seep back in. That's why these practices are so important. Because these practices, they they give space for God to do his continuing work in our hearts. And this is the good news. That God doesn't just kind of create this new heart in us and then say, hey, you're on your own now. But instead, he continues to work in our hearts, renewing them day by day. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. We are being renewed day by day by God's Spirit working in us. In Colossians 3, Paul says, We have taken off our old self with its practices and we've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. This renewal that comes through our knowledge of God. It's this thing that God is doing. His spirit is doing in our hearts on a day-to-day basis. So you didn't just say a prayer once. You didn't just make a decision once and then go on your your way. No, you, you entered into a relationship with God where you're praying and worshiping and spending time in his word and he's renewing you. He's making that heart new day by day by day, giving you this heart of flesh, enabling you to hear his voice, enabling you to live, as he made you to live. And so this morning, whether you've never made that decision before, or whether you have, but you know that there's there's a stiffening there, there's a callousness there. I want to encourage you, I want to appeal to you. Come to him. Come to him. He is, he is willing to make your heart new. He's wanting to do that. He desires you to know him. He really does. So let's, let's worship. Let's worship. Let's pray. Um, I'm, I'm excited about this time of response. We're going to sing a new song that is just asking God, give us, give us this fresh touch. Make us new again. Fresh wind. That's what we need. I'm pray with me. And, and maybe just stand as, as you pray. And if you'd like, maybe just hold, hold your hands out in that posture of receiving. We say thank you, God. Thank you for your indescribable gift of life, of a new heart that has come through the death of Jesus at the cross that we were unworthy, we were, we were idolatrous, we, were, we had hardened our own hearts and you gave your life for us who did not deserve it one bit. You gave your life for us and I thank you, Lord. I thank you so much, Lord. I thank you for your salvation. I thank you for your grace. And Lord, I thank you that you don't just leave us once we, even we've received that, but that you just continue to walk with us that you continue to move in us by your Holy Spirit, making us new day by day, renewing our hearts, softening them, piercing through the hardness by your word, and enabling us to hear your voice. Thank you, God, thank you for your mercy and your grace. And so today, Lord, we say we receive. We receive all that you want to do in us, Perhaps some of us, Lord, will say, for the first time, I want to receive the new heart and the new spirit that you promised to give. And others of us might say, Lord, I did receive it, but Lord, I need you to renew my heart, to give me that fresh touch by the Holy Spirit so that I can have that heart of flesh. We receive it, Lord. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us at The Bridge Church in This Way. If God has spoken to you through His Word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There, you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make Him known. We believe He is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through Him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.